Hi, everyone. There are just a few more days before EJ and I hit the road. We're traveling to Northside Library this upcoming Tuesday, November 15th, for a special live event. You can join us there to hear all about our podcast work and for a chance to be featured in a future episode. Mark your calendars for this upcoming Tuesday at 1 p.m. Space is limited, so don't forget to register at jmrl.org. You're listening to On the Same Page, a podcast from the Jefferson Madison Regional Library. Welcome back to another episode of On the Same Page, a podcast from the Jefferson Madison Regional Library System. I'm EJ, here with my co-host, Abby. That's right, I'm Abby. In today's episode, we're sharing how to grow, learn, and connect at all eight branches of JMRL. We'll also have a special reading recommendation segment to share books to read this fall. And we have our final discussion of The Glass Ocean. If you missed out on this first season of Overbooked, don't despair. We're starting a new book club title very soon. Without further ado, let's jump in to how you can grow, learn, and connect these next two weeks at JMRL. At Central, come out for a live poetry reading featuring some of the poems from this year's poetry contest on Sunday, November 20th from 2 to 3.30 p.m. At Crozet, the DMV will be on site providing a whole host of services on Wednesday, November 16th from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Register now to reserve your spot. At Gordon, meet Juno the therapy dog, one of the world's best listeners. Read aloud to Juno at the Pause to Read event on Thursday, November 17th. Slots are from 3 to 4 p.m. At Green, don't miss the monthly Cookbook Book Club on Tuesday, November 15th from 6 to 8 p.m. At Louisa, all writers are invited to congregate for some writing time on Thursday, November 17th from 4 to 5 p.m. At Nelson, kids 8 through 11 can make a wind chime. This craft is scheduled for Wednesday, November 16th from 3.45 to 4.45. At Northside, as you all know, EJ and I will be sharing all about our little podcast world on Tuesday, November 15th from 1 to 2 p.m. It will be informative, fun, and participatory. Don't forget to register at jmrl.org. At Scottsville, there is a new storytime session being offered every Saturday at 11 a.m. geared towards kids four and up. There will be crafts, songs, and free play. As always, check the calendar to find more information and to register. All right, Abby, now it's time for that special reading recommendation segment. Get ready to fall into reading listeners with JMRL's Fall Reading Challenges with Beanstack. Visit jmrl.org to sign up or for more information. I will be giving you all 12 books that you can fall into reading with. So I have separated the list into genres. So let's start with the classics. Try reading The October Country by Ray Bradbury or The Tenant of Wildfell Hall by Anne Bronte. Next up, romance. Get into the mood with The X-Hex by Aaron Sterling. If you're looking for something a little more thrilling, try Home Before Dark by Riley Sager or The Death of Mrs. Westerway by Ruth Ware. 
you're looking for some historical fiction like I usually like to read in the fall, try The Dutch House by Ann Patchett or There There by Tommy Orange. Maybe you're in the mood for a nonfiction book this fall. Well, I've got you covered. Try The Gratitude Diaries, How a Year Looking on the Bright Side Can Transform Your Life by Janice Kaplan. May I recommend In Cold Blood by Truman Capote. It's definitely intense, so be ready for that one. On the fantasy side, we have A Discovery of Witches by Deborah Harkness and Practical Magic by Alice Hoffman. And if you're looking for something more domestic fiction-like, try The Immortalists by Chloe Benjamin. Thanks for tuning in for this segment. You can find all of the books that I've mentioned here in the show notes below. Here we go. You know what time it is now. It's overbooked time. Today, we're discussing the very end of our inaugural podcast book club, The Glass Ocean. What a ride. We're jumping right into chapter 28, Sarah's chapter, her last chapter. What a crazy, unexpected chapter. I thought everything was tying up in a nice little bow. We got some leads on research. Sarah and John will walk off together into the folly and they'll start doing all the research there together. I, I don't know. I had happy, happy endings on the mind here. I did not expect this very weird turn of events. Yeah, I thought it was weird. I mean, okay, my first note about the chapter is falling in love with John. So lovey-dovey. And then my next bullet point is she's going to lunch with Jared. What is this new twist? Like what will be revealed? Because it's been established that she only has one more day, less than a day, like a few more hours with John. So I don't even get why she's giving him the time of day. Then when she gets there with Jared, there's just this sense of dread, even though it's not your typical, like, he hasn't cornered her in a dark alley or anything, but he's kind of fishing for information. And the first thing that he asks is, are you together? Like, are you with John? And at that point, I mean, I think Sarah should have known that that something was up, either that he was a reporter or that he was just a total total weirdo and jerk and I, I don't know she starts getting drunk in the middle of the day and John walks in quote pink-faced and thunderous oh it all came crashing down oh yeah and it was it was honestly just surprising from Sarah because she tends to overanalyze everything that goes on I mean the whole scene when they when she's with Rupert at the archives, she's overanalyzing every single thing that they're looking at and the actions of the employees that are being taken. But for this, she's like, but alas, John, I must leave you to go to have a quick lunch in the daytime with a, <laughs> sorry, I just say that because the drinking thing really got to me. But anyway, I'll get to that in a second. <laughs> a quick lunch with someone who's blowing up my phone. I don't know what she was thinking, but then I did think maybe she's just running because she was worried about stuff moving fast. So maybe all that stuff that John said, it was like a trigger in her head was she was like, I have to run from this now. Because she even says in her inner monologue when she's meeting with Jared, why am I meeting with Jared? <laughs> I don't 
don't even like Jared. I didn't like Jared when we were in grad school. What's wrong with me? Why am I even doing this? I think she was looking for any kind of door, window, anything to get out because she was scared of what was going to happen with John. And where I think the most intrigue lies or where the authors are asking us to put all these pieces together is at the very end of the chapter where where John comes in and we find out that Jared is a Daily Mail reporter and John accuses him of getting his story. But we don't actually hear Sarah talk to Jared. I mean, what I wrote down on my paper is she wouldn't have told him things, would she? Like, would she have told him these things? I just feel like the authors are asking us to put these pieces together. And it was it was hard for me to do that because I didn't want to. I didn't want to feel like it had all fallen apart. And I was very sad. I think you're right. I think the authors ask the reader to do a lot of putting things together or at least speculating in this book. Throughout the whole book, they've kind of done this type of thing. Like, are, will it be Tess and Robert? Will it be Caroline and Robert? Will Caroline and all this stuff? And is Gilbert involved? Is he a traitor? All this stuff. So... I'm not surprised that this is kind of strange what's going on here. A sad, sad end, sad end to this to the Sarah and John tale in the book, I think. It pretty much implies that John walks away and Sarah walks away, and then that's pretty much it. That's the end of their chapter. I want to ask you this, EJ. When you finished chapter 28 and they walked away from each other, what did you think was gonna happen? Because I thought they were going to make up immediately. I thought they were going to have a resolution immediately or maybe in a day or two. When that chapter ended the way it did, at first I was annoyed because we got no resolution on how any of the research happened. Like we didn't know anything. So I was like, okay, there has to be an epilogue that explains there they couldn't have just not answered the research question. Like I needed to know what her book was about. So that was my first hang up with the end of the chapter. So I figured we will get some sort of resolution. I thought maybe they would have finished their work together and then just made it like more of a professional thing. I, I did not think it was going to go the way the epilogue went, which I don't want to skip to now. So we'll we'll move on to to two chapters that kind of blur into each other quite a bit with overlapping um, stories. So we'll we'll go straight into chapter twenty nine, which which of course is Caroline's chapter. Yeah, this this is hard for Caroline. She's learning a lot about herself, but I'm I'm realizing that I was pretty much wrong about Caroline the whole time, which I'm okay with. I'm good with that. Good character development. Tess ends up saving Caroline's life. I think Caroline probably like ends up saving Tess's life too, like in different ways. Really, these two chapters are about a. F- a budding friendship. That's kind of how I saw it. Regardless of if Tess and Caroline talk to each other or see each other or continue to communicate after all of this happens, it, I'll let you jump in there with with what they're what's going on. Oh man! Well, they swim. They swim together. They find Robert and Gilbert. Gilbert, of course, looks lovingly at Caroline. And then he's pulled underwater. And in that moment, okay, can I say something that's very inappropriate that I would never say about a person? But we have to remember that this is fiction. These are not real people. And I've created a fair amount of distance between myself and these characters. I wrote, this might be a more bittersweet ending if Gilbert would go ahead and die right here because it doesn't give him a chance to screw up anymore. 
oh, and I reread that and it's so cold. Man, I'm cold. But, you know, they had exchanged. He he and Caroline had this sweet resolution. They made these promises, not not elaborate things, but just that they were going to live a nice life. So I thought, okay, he's pulled underwater. Maybe he's just going to go ahead and get gone. I guess my main takeaway is that even at the end of the book, I was happy that they had this nice resolution, but I didn't have a lot of faith that Gilbert would be forever changed. I don't even want to test Gilbert. I don't even want him to have a chance to screw up. Just just let him go ahead and and let them end on a happy note. So I agree with you. More happens in chapter 30 for both Tess and Caroline that happens in chapter 29. In 29, there's a lot of action. There's a lot of description of swimming and saving and heartbeats and and a lot of stuff that, that's fun to read, but not a lot going on story-wise. Like, they're getting rescued. They're trying to find their loved ones. It's all stuff you would expect survivors in this type of a tragedy to happen. So going straight into 30, Tess's chapter, the final chapter of the book, this is the one where I feel a lot of the resolution of a lot of the characters happen. Tess and Robert have been separated at this point. Tess is with Caroline at this point. They don't know if Robert or Gilbert is alive. It picks up where they are finding people and then they run into Robert and Gilbert. Gilbert is very badly injured. The outlook isn't good, but they're together. So the four of them are together. They seem to just be in that moment together, all of them. Caroline looking at Gilbert, Tess and Robert having this moment as, in Tess's mind, I think, probably platonic friends or, you know, someone that she loves very deeply. But she is still, at the beginning of this chapter, trying to shove Caroline and Robert together. I just wanted to comment on that moment when Tess and Robert find each other because for a minute, the world seems to pause and they're just looking at each other. This is before they have any conversation. And I think, oh, man, like they here's where they're going to get together. But no, the authors delayed us even more because they immediately when they begin talking, the first thing they talk about is Caroline and Gilbert. And is is Gilbert going to die? And it's like these logistics of these other people. They're not talking about themselves or each other. And it even becomes a bit terse in my mind, a bit cold, like they're harsh with each other even a little bit. So I just chalked that up to them being on edge. I think that's a lot chalked up to Tess's main mission, which is trying to find Ginny. I mean, that's pretty much what she talks about the whole chapter. Tess continues to meddle even even late into her chapter. The next day, she goes off on her own and actually ends up writing like notes to Robert and Caroline from each other. That's like, meet me at the dock or whatever. And, And so she's still continuously trying to push them together. And I think that's because she... She ultimately just wants Robert to be happy, and she thinks that that's what will make him happy because she says, I was never Caroline's competition. She finally figured it out. It was never a competition. It was always Caroline. But now Caroline made her choice, and that seems to have some finality with it. And I think that's why she's focusing a lot on Jenny because I think the two people that love her most in the world are Robert and Jenny, and Robert slipping away from her to go with someone else in her head. And so she needs to find Ginny who will accept her no matter what, or so she thought. And then eventually when Robert does tell Tess that Gilbert has died, 
even more motivation for Tess to push them together. Like, they're right there. But it, it just doesn't work out that way. And I also just want to walk through this order of events that I thought was so interesting with the authors. As I mentioned, their first interaction of Tess's chapter, like this is Tess's chapter. This is her story in a way. And that first interaction is a little cold, a little uncertain, a little on edge, harsh. And then after Gilbert dies, Tess does, they do start to warm up to each other a little bit. They're they're speaking more warmly, and they even say things along the lines of, I like you. So that's what makes it even more interesting in the next scene when Tess wants to trade Robert for Ginny. That's when she sends Robert to Caroline to as like one final act of, you know, like I because we realize like she likes Robert. We, we got we get to see a little bit of that warmness again. But then she sends him away and says like she's testing God. So she says that she wants to give Robert in exchange for Ginny, which just shows how much she really grieves for Ginny. Um, but in the end, she goes to the mass funeral. She never finds Ginny and she cries alone. But Robert does come and holds her in his arms. But that is not the moment when he decides to ask Tess to marry him. It it, it goes something like this. They're they're on the side of the road, I guess after the funeral after the funeral. And it says that he says, Robert, come with me after, quote, pausing by the side of the road. So that choice of words, I might be nitpicking, but it says he pauses by the side of the road, which makes me think he was walking away and just randomly decides to pause and be like, wait, you know, maybe I'll have Tess come on along. Like, just spur the moment spontaneous. Just love that choice of word, pausing by the side of the road, as in maybe they were walking, maybe together, or maybe he was a few steps ahead of her. But he says to come with me to, like, start this new life and just casually offers her to marry him. Basically, the, the no one helps Robert with his inner demons more than Tess does, that she kind of makes them inconsequential, essentially. And yeah, I mean, that, that's been true since the moment they kind of ended up together. You know, I think I think they are matched in a intellectual level that he hadn't found with anybody before because she's not falling all over him. She's strong on her own. I think she's pretty quick to say, like, well, yeah, this is probably the best option for me. If 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 I'm going to have an option after all of this, like this is not necessarily the worst one that I could have. And I think she feels this level of wanting to take care of him, even if she thinks that he's in love with Caroline, she's kind of OK with it. And I kind of respect that because she knows that it's going to just be a better life for her. So I like to see Tess making a decision for herself. And then they run into a whippet. And I was like, what? <laughs> that part of the book, I, I loved it. I thought it was so great. And tie every, everything up in a nice little bow. They find their first whippet on the side of the road. And they're just like, do you want to take her? Yeah, let's take this dog. Yeah, we'll just take this. And I'm just like, okay, good for you guys. You found a whippet on the side of the road. And now it's your dog named Walnut. And I, I was like, what? 
Why did they name the dog Walnut? So now all of the whippets, are they just all named Walnut? Because that's that's a little, talking about macabre, that's macabre for me. That's too much. The book actually did end up on a relative high note. And then we can move into the epilogue, which was shocking, <laughs> I think, to say the least. It It's told from Sarah's perspective. So wh- why don't you start us off, Abby? I see lots of capital letters on your on your notes page. <laughs> yes, we are in current day Cork, Ireland, and Sarah is on book tour for her new book. It's two years later. She's on the book tour, blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden, you know, a few pages into the epilogue, it says something along the lines of, yeah, and this reminds me of like the last time I saw John two years ago. And I'm like, what? Two years? Because if you remember, I thought they were going to resolve this. I mean, what? Two years? And she had never seen him. Oh, what is this? So I was flabbergasted, but thankfully the authors did not leave me floundering for too long because John is at the speaking engagement, and at first he seems hostile, but then he asks if she will have dinner with him. So then I started feeling much more hopeful for the future, but yeah, that was a a great moment. I don't know if it was a great moment. Freaked me out, Um, but I'll, I'll just... I'll kind of set us up a little bit here of what happened. So we got a lot of stuff resolved that I was excited about. So Cork, Ireland is Queensland, Ireland. So essentially the epilogue picks up exactly where the book ended. So Tess and Robert and Caroline, I guess, are in Queensland, Ireland. That's where they ended up. A lot of survivors ended up there. Sarah's epilogue picks up in modern day Cork because they're research and their eventual book, which is very popular, has to do with the survivors that came into Queensland at that time, Queensland or modern day Cork. She ended up writing and pivoting her research to talk about Caroline. And that was surprising because I didn't see that coming, but it made sense with the whole piano recital pamphlet being such a weird question mark through the last couple of chapters. What's going on with that? Her book was about how Caroline's survival allowed her to open up a music conservatory in Savannah and how her daughter was this amazing musician. And they came up with these crazy techniques that were new. And and so all these new things. So Sarah's research definitely pivoted that we find out a lot in a lot in a short amount of time. But yeah, two years since she had seen John. What? So I got I was happy I got my research question answered. The two years thing, shocking. She comes to some resolution inside of her soul that's like that's the way it had to be. And I think she did realize that maybe it was going too fast for her. And so she took some subconscious steps to make it end in sad ways and make us wait for an epilogue to be happy. We don't know if they're still together, but I, I think they went out and had their dinner and hopefully became two more mature adults through the whole experience. Back to the whole two-year interlude thing. Another thing that I forgot to mention was I agree. And hearing you talk about it, EJ, helps me because I think you're right that she needed two whole years to process that week-long relationship. And because there's a line in in the epilogue where it says that John was with her 
those entire two years. And I was like, what? But it turns out he was just with her like spirit. She thought about him and, and he was with her so intensely that it in her mind that she even says they made peace. They. So it's almost like even though it was a one sided thing, she was so at peace with him that she was almost able to feel like he was at peace with her. So it was neat to read about how that processing time he was there with her. I just thought that was a cool thing because then when they did get back together, they could just pick up almost as if they had been together those whole two years because it's communicated in a way through the story that they were in each other's hearts. Oh man. And I, I think now they just have more time because, you know, Sarah's mother did pass in the two years And I think that's just another timer that Sarah had during the book that even if she had to leave because of the research, she had to ultimately leave because of her mom. And so she was searching for more time the whole book, more time to work on the research, more time with John. And maybe that's it it all came back to time, you know, just the time to be together, the time to think, the time to grieve, the time to move on, the time to figure oneself out. So I do like that they kind of took their own time. And good things happened for John as well. You know, it wasn't like he was sitting at home just like waiting for Sarah to come on a book tour. He got reelected to his seat or he became back a member of parliament again and he wrote his whole manifesto. So he was doing like good things and and getting his notoriety back in the country. So I think I think it just came down to their time. And that's the end. That's the end of our glass ocean discussion. So we read the whole book. We talked about the whole thing, every single chapter and down to the line. We had fun. We enjoyed it. Hope that you did too. And this this segment is coming back to our podcast. So now that we're done with one book, we're just going to start another one. So we hope that you will continue to join us every two weeks for Overbooked. And tune in next week for a sneak peek of the next Overbooked selection, All the Light We Cannot See by Anthony Dewar. Thank you, listeners, for being a part of this podcast community. We're so happy to have you. We hope you'll join us in taking a moment to thank the Friends of the Library, who generously support this endeavor. If you'd like to learn more or join the Friends, you can head to their website at jmrlfriends.org. That's all for us today. We'll be back next week with a special sneak peek of next season's overbooked pick, All the Light We Cannot See. Don't forget, you can get involved on social media or by emailing us at podcast at jmrl.org. Thanks for tuning in. We're glad to be on the same page. page.